You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. The Bowery Boys, Episode 235, The Wall Street Crash of 1929, New York City in Crisis. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey, Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. And we are here with part three, the final part of our summer series on the Roaring Twenties. We made it, Greg. We made it. We have already, this summer or this month, covered the wild politics at City Hall with the story of Jimmy Walker. Then we ducked into the speakeasy scene and examined the causes and implications of prohibition in New York City with, of course, on the arm of our <laughs> pearl-draped hostess extraordinaire, Texas Guinan. So those are the last two episodes. If you have missed either of those, we certainly recommend um, listening to those as soon as you can, because now here we are for episode three, worked up in a frenzy at the end of the decade. The city is bumping and the money is flowing. Oh, yes. There's money everywhere, all over the city. In fact, another aspect of the 20s that we've been alluding to is all the fast cash that fueled this boom in the first place. Right, because during the 1920s, for the first time really in American history, seemingly everyone had started investing on Wall Street. Even banks were loaning cash to investors to invest in the market, which was driving the market higher and higher and creating great fortunes and a major financial bubble, which of course, would pop in late 1929 when the market that made the economy boom went bust. Now, many of you may know some of the details of the Wall Street crash of 1929, which we will get into on this show. But there is another major crisis in New York that happens immediately in the wake of the crash. And that is a major crackdown on government corruption in New York and would reach into all aspects of New York City life, from the detectives on the street corner all the way up to City Hall. So we'll be telling that story at the same time that we're telling the stock market story and really examining how the changing fortunes of Wall Street affected some of the other leading figures in our two previous shows, specifically Mayor Jimmy Walker and Texas Guinan, along with some other big names who are waiting in the wings, mm -hmm. because really nobody's going to get out of this story <laughs> unscathed. Oh, no, this will change New York City forever. So buckle your seatbelts and join us as we tackle the crash of 1929 and the end of the Jazz Age. Once I lived a life of a millionaire Spending my money I didn't care I carried my friends out For a good time by 
Wow, we really just covered a lot. We teased a lot in yeah, that intro. Mm -hmm. Could you refresh our memory as to the cast of characters we're dealing with in the right. first place? Because we're going to talk about these important events in New York City history, but we have some particular personalities mm -hmm. that we can follow through these events, all of whom we have introduced in the past two shows. Of course, we have the mayor of New York City in 1929, uh, Jimmy Walker, suave, charming leader of New York City that was elected in 1925, very well connected to the Democratic political machine Tammany Hall, but known for some early political successes, of course, but it really defined more as a party boy. Right, the nightmare, the nightlife mayor. I, I also saw him referred to as the late Mayor Walker because he was late for <laughs> everything. Late, yes. Yeah. Well, on his arm was another character, Betty Compton, his chorus girl mistress, who at the end of our Jimmy Walker show, Walker had left his wife and moved in with his mistress up on Park Avenue. Right. Then we have Al Smith, who's the governor of New York, the Catholic governor of New York. He had made a deal with Walker to support his run for mayor if he would sort of stifle some of these outgoing nightlife urges. Nightlife urges, by which you mean heading out to speakeasies and the underground drinking yeah. culture, because we're in the middle of prohibition. Right, and it, which we embodied in our last show in the hourglass form of Texas Guinan, <laughs> the movie star turned hostess of the Prohibition era. Then we ended both of those last shows with the murder of Arnold Rothstein, who was an important leader of organized crime. He's the link, really, between illicit alcohol sales and the speakeasy world, and, of course, to those corrupt corners of Tammany Hall. Okay, so you've given us five characters here, but really couldn't you say that New York City is a character, too? Maybe the sixth character of, of the story? Yes, New York City, of course, at the start of 1929. The good times are still rolling here. The value of real estate is, of course, facilitating the rise of Midtown Manhattan. As we talk all the interpersonal dramas here of our key players, in the background, something extraordinary is, is happening in the city, uh, something that's changing New York City forever, and that is the skyscraper race that's happening. Really, 1929 is an important year in that, and we have two prior podcasts where we go into this more deeply the Tallest Building in New York podcast, which was episode 169, and the Battle for the Skyline, which was 199. But essentially, in 1929, there's a skyscraper race to the top happening in the city, a, a battle between a, a handful of buildings. Right. And in particular, two key buildings, one, the Chrysler Building mm -hmm. and 40 Wall Street, which today we know is the Trump Building. Those are in the process of construction. So back to those original characters. By 1929, Al Smith is not really in the picture as governor anymore. Well, he ran for president in 1928. How'd that work out for him? He lost to Herbert Hoover, who was replacing Calvin Coolidge for the job. It was largely believed that Smith lost because he was Catholic. But there was also lots of prosperity. There was a Republican in office, so why would you switch? Good times are still rolling here, right? Right, but I guess there, there were a lot of Americans um, who were afraid that he would ultimately be answering to the Pope. There yeah. was something that seemed un-American mm -hmm. about him, and he was too closely aligned with his home state, New yeah. York. The new governor of New York City was a man named Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Now, he was a Hyde Park Democrat who ran on a platform of progressive government, and which allowed him to win in 1928. Because he was the Hyde Park 
Democrat. Yeah, what does that mean? Well, it just it means that Hyde he was the, the town. Valley? That's where he was from. Essentially, he was not because he was not centered in New York City. He didn't have a lot of allegiances to Tammany Hall. So okay. this will come into play because he is doesn't have great relations with the mayor, Jimmy Walker, and he's not beholden to these powerful, corrupt Tammany Hall forces. So even though he's a Democrat, he's not in bed with Tammany. Right. Now, Rothstein, who had we had mentioned, was killed on November 6, 1928. It was revealed that he was shot because of mass gambling debts. He had ticked off just one too many thugs in the New York underworld. His murder would never be officially solved. But it does kick off two kind of major events that will end New York's good times here. Now, as you had mentioned, Rothstein managed to control a huge empire of liquor and narcotics distribution, you know, an outside organized crime system. He was the, the, the kind of in the head of it, right? Right. He, he was the mastermind be- behind figuring out how to get and distribute the booze during Prohibition in New York City where there would have otherwise been warring factions between organized crime families. Yeah. Other big cities in the country had mostly one family in charge of the, the importation of illegal booze. But New York was too big for that. So it was Rothstein who figured out how they could work together without killing each other off and make everybody rich in the process, which worked for much of the 20s. But by the end of the 20s, it was becoming dicey. Well, now with Rothstein out of the picture, Exhibit it's, a. it's a free-for-all which is symbolized in a curious kind of conference in, in 1929. I, I, it wasn't in a conference hall. I wonder if they had like, you know, one of those tables of like little sandwiches and bagels and like Name bad tags. coffee. Yeah, I don't think. Anyway, it was the Atlantic City Conference. And if you've watched Boardwalk Empire, you know this well. But it was essentially the first summit of organized crime leaders who were all scrambling to pick up the pieces now that Rothstein was out of the picture. This would, in the short term make prohibition and liquor distribution in New York a much more dangerous proposition. And in the long term, of course, this would give organized crime a firmer footing in the United States for decades afterwards. So very critical here. What's the other thing that it kicked off? Well, it's interesting because this murder wasn't solved. A lot of the press began probing into this and realizing that a lot of the reasons it wasn't solved is because the the police had their hands dirty on both sides of this. And so it wasn't expedient for them to necessarily solve this. Right? Because they were supposed to be investigating the very people who were paying them off in the mm-hmm. first place. So... People began really looking very seriously into police and government corruption. One of the loudest voices criticizing City Hall's own lack of results here was a U.S. congressman who represented the district of East Harlem. East Harlem in 1929, when it was mostly an Italian-American neighborhood. Yes, the congressman I am speaking about was an Italian-American. He was actually born in 1882 in Greenwich Village. His first name was Italian for flower. And because he was a man of diminutive stature... But smelled good. But smelled good. (laughs) Oh, that's true. That's a good point. His nickname was actually Little Flower. Uh Of course, I'm talking Fiorella LaGuardia, who was a Republican 
in a largely Democrat-controlled city. But he was also one of the first significant voices for the repeal of Prohibition and had even testified in front of Congress as early as 1926. In 1926, actually, in Harlem, he would demonstrate for people on the street and for the press how to brew your own beer <laughs> at home. So he, And he was kind of asking to be arrested, but the police just kind of like looked away, you know, and kept walking. He said, quote, I will concede that the saloon was odious but we have delicatessen stores, pool rooms, drug stores, millinery shops, private parlors, and 57 other varieties of speakeasies selling liquor and flourishing. So he wanted to put a cap on this, if you will. Wait, so he thought that repealing prohibition would be a way of shutting down the speakeasies yeah. and cleaning up the streets. Yeah, and cleaning up the streets and cleaning up all this like poisonous liquor and like shutting down the organized crime. But whereas he, LaGuardia, was speaking about these issues mm -hmm. of liquor, Mayor Walker was out enjoying said <laughs> liquor. Well, he had to test them out for himself. <laughs> so in 1929, while all of this is going on, mm -hmm. lawyers for the city of New York kicked out the proprietor of a restaurant that was located in Central Park. It was called the Casino. Well, you know, Walker wanted, like, a place for his own, really, and this became kind of a second city hall, the night city hall. It became revamped as a hot Art Deco nightclub, reopened in June of 1929, and Walker was basically there almost like every other night. It was filled with New York's elite, businessmen, and, of course, Ziegfeld girls, left and right. Hold on a second. So this is a <laughs> nightclub called the Casino in Central Park with all of this going on, showgirls, glitterati. Mm-hmm. Glitterati. And I, and Glitter, I'm glittery all <laughs> over the place. I'm assuming then booze. As much as you could consume. Flowing freely around the mayor mm -hmm. during Prohibition. Okay. Well, this just sounds like a gay old time. Where, where is... Where's Texas Guinan um, <laughs> right. in the midst of all of this? So she's still out there, like, having legal problems with all of her speakeasies. All of her nightclubs are getting shut down. People were thrilled, though, that she was getting off from these crimes because, of course, there was more and more support for the repeal of Prohibition right. by this time. And she kind of embodied that. They, like, the people were rooting her on. But behind the scenes, though, she was actually very slowly getting out of the nightclub business. It was getting a little bit darker, for her, uh, you as know, it was getting more dangerous, having several clubs that get closed down might like lead you to want to do something else with your life. In fact, she would go back to work in movies now that they had sound. And she made a movie in 1929 that was essentially an autobiographical film called Queen of the Nightclubs. Wow. So she got to actually play herself. She's almost becoming a caricature. Oh, yes. I would say if she wasn't a caricature already, she's now a caricature of a caricature here. But she's still very rich. And then finally, one more thing before we move on. I just I want to go back to Al Smith for just a second. Mm. On August 29th of 1929. 19, so that's the year following his unsuccessful run for president. Right. And, and he's no longer governor. He's no longer governor, but he, you know, and Walker, his protege, is out at the casino, <laughs> Smith has a press conference announcing a $50 million new skyscraper project that will be called the Empire State Building, capping a decade of prosperity and growth in the city. And when it was done, would represent America's continued economic growth here, right? Right. 
that's how people fell in late August of 1929, that it was just always going to go up, 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 and mm-hmm. that, that we were reaching this new permanent level of prosperity. So then to understand what transpired a couple months later, in late October of 1929, we kind of have to rewind a little bit because things had already um, gotten a little out of hand on Wall Street because much of the great wealth that, that you were just talking about had been built by speculators on Wall Street. These are people who were buying and selling stocks often very quickly and often primarily just to get short-term gains. They, they weren't buying a company stock because they wanted to really invest in that company, but rather because they thought that they could turn that stock around very quickly and sell it at a profit and then go off and turn it around and sell some other stock. Oh, this doesn't sound very above board. Well, it's it's perfectly legal. It's just not entirely <laughs> sustainable, right. especially when speculators were buying what's called on margin, where they were also getting loans from banks to invest in the stock market. So imagine that about 40% of bank loans in the country were going to, in many cases, middle-class investors to invest in the stock market. Well, you know, I'm not going to get too deep over my head in economics. I was never very good at economics <laughs> um, in school. We're, we're not we're not freakonomics, so it's okay to we can we can. Yeah, we should the, bring those guys in here. They <laughs> to can talk straighten about us yes. out. <laughs> Speculative investing is kind of confusing, but investing in the stock and not in the company can spiral out of control and quickly lead to a stock market bubble. Uh, as as a company's stock value shoots up be- because people think that they can sell it at a profit and not because they think that the company is being effectively run or it's, you know, uh, worthy of their investment. So over the course of the 1920s, one million investors in the United States, many of them middle class speculative investors, had gotten into this game. And the excitement was contagious, you know, because everybody was making money and the Dow Jones was just climbing higher and higher. And this led to other booms like you were just mentioning. It led to the real estate boom because land values were increasing as well. From between 1919 and 1929, land values increased 75 percent in the city. It would be so tempting to just jump into this and just take your plot of land and develop something lavish upon it and just watch the dough ro- roll in, right? Yeah. Oh, or if you didn't want to dabble in real estate, just to take your life savings and run down, you know, to a trading house and and start piling into whatever was hot that day and selling it tomorrow. Now, weren't there any warning signs at this time? There, there had been. In fact, in, on March 25th of 1929, the Federal Reserve issued a warning that there was too much speculation. And, and indeed, the market actually got a little bit spooked as investors started selling off stocks to cut their losses. However, you know, this, this soon turned around and investors shrugged off the warning. And by, by summertime, the market was going higher than ever. And in fact, the Dow Jones hit its record on September 3rd of 1929 when it reached 381.17. So that paired with this announcement of the Empire State Building by Al Smith are just these two tent poles of like, like things are just like, are going out of control. Four days apart. He mm-hmm. announces on August 29th, uh-huh. four days later, the Dow Jones Jones hits their record, okay? Now, just three weeks after that, on September 20th, the London Stock Exchange crashed, and that created some jitters on Wall Street. 
And it was one month later, on Thursday, October 24th, referred to now as Black Thursday, that within an hour of the opening bell, there was a frantic sell-off on Wall Street as traders started to offload their riskiest investments and and the market quickly in that in the opening hour or two lost 11% of their value. Wow, I guess everyone ran to sell off their shares. It even got worse, hold on, because there were so many transactions to tabulate millions of them that the ticker tape that they were using to print the you know the, mm-hmm. the most recent value of the stock it couldn't print the prices fast enough it couldn't keep up and and the ticker tape became several hours delayed so there was no way of even knowing what the price of a share was at that moment you just knew that they were going down which only fueled more panic among these investors everybody wanted to sell everybody wanted to get out $10 billion of stock had vanished. Everybody wanted to get out, and hundreds of people, panicked investors, headed down to, to Wall Street to get closer to the action themselves because word was getting around town that this crash was happening down at the stock exchange, and, and people wanted to get closer. Maybe they could do something if they were there in person. You see photos of this, by the way, and I'm Mm -hmm. sure you'll put them on the blog, of of investors rushing to the stock exchange, trying to get in, trying to get up in the visitor's gallery to look down and kind of see what's going on so they could know how to to bid, to sell, or to buy something else. But they, they wanted to be closer to the action. Well, it's with these financial crises, they're like an invisible terror because it's something very bad happening, but it, it doesn't seem like it's a tangible thing. And so it's only in these types of pictures do you realize what a horror show this is becoming with these thousands of panicked people crammed into this area of Wall Street and Broad Street. Just trying to get information. And there were rumors, of course, that were spreading quickly. Rumors about traders committing suicide. Rumors, you know, that the banks were failing. At noon, several of the big banks met and decided to to come to the rescue of the stock market by pooling their resources together and buying up $240 million of blue chip stocks. They were going to buy them up at above market prices in an effort to bolster the market and turn the thing around. And so this was at noon, just a few hours after the market opened. All of this was only just a few hours like in length. Right. All those people who were pushing to get into the visitor's gallery, they were pushed off at 1230. The visitor's gallery was closed. And as Edward Rob Ellis writes in his fine book, The Epic of New York City, Richard Whitney, who was the acting head of the stock exchange at the time, literally walked around the floor of the exchange starting at 1.30 in the afternoon with this $240 million basically in his pocket, spending millions at a time. He walked over and offered $205 per share for U.S. Steel, which at that moment was trading at 193 So he was offering more than $10 more a share which obviously, you know, encouraged other traders to get in on the action and and started driving prices up. So banks were really trying to bail out the sinking ship here. Did it work? It did initially because the the market would almost entirely recover by the end of the day on Thursday. And it would even rally on Friday when, by the way, those banks would then cash in and get their investment Mm -hmm. back. 
the weekend's papers are very interesting for us to look at now in retrospect because they ran all kinds of stories about how this was a correction that needed to happen. The Sunday's New York Times called the trading day on Thursday um, inevitable, quote, because because of all of the speculative trading that had taken place and added that among economists, um, quote, all are optimistic again. Monday's paper, Monday's Times, painted a cheery and, and really reassuring picture of Wall Street working overtime on Sunday night when they're normally closed to get their books in order ready for Monday's opening. Okay, so everyone thought that this crisis was over and that they were going to pick up the pieces. Well, I don't know if everybody did because I think that a good number of investors had been significantly spooked by what happened, and they decided that on Monday they were going to get out while they could of what what proved to be a very volatile stock market. So on Monday, forever after referred to as Black Monday, the sell-off started again, and the Dow lost 13% of its value. On Tuesday, October 29th, which is the day that most of us think of you know, Black Tuesday, yeah, uh-huh. the, the big day when the crash happened. Well, it's actually about the fourth day of the crash. But on Tuesday, October 29th, 16 million shares were bought and sold, and the Dow lost another 12%. And it was across the board. It, there was there was just a major sell-off that even affected big-name stocks, too, like DuPont and General Electric General Motors and Standard Gas, these these were the kinds of companies that at the end of Tuesday were trading between 42 and 77 percent below their previous high of that year. What about these investors who were trading on margin? Well, well the banks who had loaned them money to buy their stocks were suddenly calling in their loans, forcing them to, to pay up the entire loan that they had given them for, for these investments. And this wiped out millions of small investors. In these two days, on Monday and Tuesday, more than $30 billion had been lost in the market. It's an incredible sum of money, $30 billion of 1929 money. This was far greater than what the U.S. had spent on World War I. Gone in two days. Now, sometimes in retellings of this, it can sound a little bit like a Wall Street Journal article. But the thing to remember is all of this took place on two streets, essentially, on Wall Street and Broad Street. So that's kind of the long and the short of the stock market crash. But then was the United States just plunged into depression? No. There? there are many more details here hidden in the margins. It was clear that something dramatic and terrible had happened on Wall Street. But there would be subsequent rallies, bull markets, that would seem to suggest that there was a recovery taking place. In fact, the day after Black Tuesday, on Wednesday, the market recovered 12% of its value to close at 258. You know, it would go up and down, bobble up and down for months. But then, you know, after 1930, it would just start sliding down, 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 and, and eventually hit bottom on July 8th, 1932, when it closed at a dismal 41.22. That is quite a precipitous fall from, what, 381? Was it was right, the rate in Right, to 1929. Indeed. And things would really not start turning around until the following March of 1933, uh, when the stock market would start a steady climb back. 
So there are years there where there was just cascading effects of the crash. Of course, there were immediate effects. People who had been heavily invested in speculative trading, many of them had lost their entire life savings, right? $30 billion had been lost. Nine million savings accounts had been totally depleted. But I think an even bigger problem actually happened a bit downstream as the market slid further and pulled the entire economy down with it. There was a serious problem on Wall Street, despite the fact that, say, the New York Daily News wrote on October 30th, the day after the crash, productive powers unharmed. They wrote, the sagging of the stocks has not destroyed a single factory, wiped out a single farm or city lot or real estate development, decreased the productive power of a single workman or machine in the United States. All those things are still there. And when they are essentially sound, as this country is, the more magnificently they recover. That's unusually optimistic for the day after. Yes, because the downward spiral into the depression was unstoppable because banks, especially small community banks, started to fail. And 5,000 banks would fail during the depression. Consumers then had less money. Um, and so they bought less goods, which led to factories closing and job cuts. You know, it was a vicious cycle. Farms went under because during the 1920s, they had been overproducing and they, they had actually been driving down the cost of food. So farmers were going, were going broke. And then in cities, I mean, take New York, you know, renters couldn't pay their rents and landowners couldn't pay their property taxes. And so city revenues were driving up even as the city was being forced to spend more than ever uh, to help out its citizens who were facing this dire crisis. So there was, like in New York, an enormous public debt being created. And renters or homeowners who couldn't pay up, well, they were being forced out of their apartments and their homes into the streets. And this would only get worse into the 1930s. But all the way back here in October of 1929, no one could really foresee how bad it would become then. No. And, you know, they, they were trying to put a positive spin. Another article in the Times on October 30th, the day after, pointed out that actually, quote, to the surprise of theater managers, uh, Broadway theaters had been packed on Black Tuesday night, especially with comedies and musicals. People weren't so much in the mood to to see tragedies that <laughs> night. But can we address this urban legend here? Did people actually throw themselves out of windows due to losing tons of money because of the stock market crash? I mean, a couple people are reported to have done so. Um, but the image of traders plunging to their death from their Wall Street office windows, I believe, has been seriously exaggerated. And, and a journalist in The Washington Post in 1987 actually looked into it, and he found that he could really only find four people who were reported to have jumped in the months following the crash uh, because of the crash. And only two of those jumps happened on Wall Street. In fact, much of the urban legend may have been created by humorist Will Rogers, who quipped after Black Thursday, so the first day of mm -hmm. the crisis, that, quote, when Wall Street took that tailspin, you had to stand in line to get a window to jump out of, and speculators were selling space for bodies in the East River. Oh, what a card. 
Yeah. <laughs> Will Rogers knew how to really knock him over. Well, while all of this is going on, by the way, I think people are a little bit more distracted by something else that's happening, which is the mayoral election. Oh, right. There was going. <laughs> there was a race for yeah. mayor that was happening on November 5th. I mean, of it's so weird that these are all happening almost concurrently. So Fiorel LaGuardia, who I mentioned earlier, well, he decides to throw his hat in the ring as the Republican nominee to run against Jimmy Walker. Mm-hmm. Now, people liked Fiorello. He was a very effective congressman. He was a very effective politician. However, he was no match in 1929 for the charm and the charismatic skills of Jimmy Walker, who was indeed re-elected that November and took office on January 3rd. This was the first sentence of the lead article in the New York Times on that date. As his first act of duty, Mayor Walker signed four bills into law, increasing the salaries of himself Mm -hmm. and of his seven colleagues in the Board of Estimate and Appointment. So his he first, gave himself a raise as his first act. As his first act, a couple months after the stock market crash. Yes. So we're entering 1930, and he's still being the same old Jimmy Walker, but the city that he's governing would not be the same old New York City. We'll talk about New York City in crisis after this. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Okay, so we're back here at the beginning of 1930. Mm -hmm. Jimmy Walker has just been sworn into his second term. Mm -hmm. The stock market has just crashed. Right. And New York is in the opening throes of the Depression. Right. It doesn't quite know it as the Great Depression yet. But what New Yorkers... It knows it was a slump. Yes. 
And I would say that New Yorkers are further fatigued by this time by this unchecked network of crime that's been brought on by prohibition and what I would basically call a boss tweed style system of graft, kickbacks, and outright theft that was being reinvigorated by prohibition. And by Tammany Hall. And in particular, yes. All this growth in the city was creating these financial opportunities to enrich people in a system where it was still very easy to hide money when you had it. And a lot of people, less people had money by this mm -hmm. time while strengthening this underworld that was thriving entirely in the dark. The press is cracking down a lot more on this corruption, focusing on lots of bizarre behavior. Uh, there are a lot of corrupt judges that are doing rather suspicious things that are just too insane to ignore. And what, like so, letting people off the hook or letting, taking bribes or taking, what? Taking outright bribes, like flaunting connections with members of the underworld. Okay, so there's... Uh, corruption with with judges and with law enforcement that we've talked about. Has this touched City Hall? Well, yeah, believe it or not, Jimmy is a, a, kind of unblemished at first because, again, he's such a likable guy. And, he and because he's never in City Hall. <laughs> he's never in City Hall, and he seems to be covering his tracks. But things are about to change, beginning in August of 1930. When uh, a state investigation is prepared to look into the corruption of the magistrate courts, which are particularly corrupt at this time. <laughs> now, chosen to lead this special counsel, this special investigation, um, was an earnest judge turned politician who was considered clean by basically both sides of the aisle and suitable for this inquiry. His name was Samuel Seabury. He, he's so clean, in fact, Tom, that in 1874, he was born in a church rectory on 14th Street and 7th Avenue. So he was literally born in a church. Wow, you can't get more unblemished than that. <laughs> well, and by this time in 1930, he had white hair spectacles. It was very opposite in appearance from the dandy Jimmy Walker. Mm-hmm. But he was just looking at the courts? It began with the courts. But then he got permission to look into the police department ah. and the sheriff's department. Ooh. And by March 1931, he pretty much was given carte blanche by the governor, FDR, to cast a wider net all over government, including and most specifically in New York City. Throughout this whole, and, and it's just an investigation at this time, keep in mind, a special counsel, special investigation. Uh, but as this net became wider, it kept bringing down little players left and right who then resigned because information would be leaked to the press. And these little stories would like take down detectives and judges here or there, lawyers that, who had been exposed as being corrupt. Did he have the power to actually call witnesses? He did. Yes, he could call as many witnesses, and as we'll find out, he'll call them at all levels of government. Most famously in the fall of 1931, Seabury grilled the sheriff of New York County, a man named Thomas Farley, who had to explain on the witness stand as to how, on a salary of just $8,500, had managed to somehow accrue a bank account of half a million dollars. He claimed that all this money magically appeared in a little tin box. Like he didn't know where it came from. So A little tin box in his... In his safe. In his safe. Yeah. Okay. 
Now, Seabury was not just pursuing bribery. He was exposing a network of fraudulent charges of all types against people who were unfairly charged with a wide variety of crimes, most notably prostitution. Hundreds of women had been thrown into jail for prostitution on scant and forged evidence because cops were getting paid to meet quotas. Like they would make more money if they had if they were able to like throw more people into jail. So they so they were setting up innocent women. They were yeah. Entrap entrapment. It was it was total entrapment. In particular, in Harlem, they would often do this. How this would sometimes operate is an undercover cop would just take a woman into like he would rent a room in a boarding house, you know, with intentions of some love making. But then a second cop would come in, arrest the woman for prostitution, even though it wasn't, and then they would arrest the landlady for running a brothel. So it was like two faked crimes for the price of one here. Totally trumped up. Seabury sent a report of 70,000 pages to the governor, summarizing what he had found in this investigation. Quote, what we have seen is a hideous caricature which parades as justice. The insidious auspices under which the magistrates, the clerks, the assistant clerks, and attendants are appointed is bad enough. The conditions under which they retain their appointments are infinitely worse because they involve the subservancy in officer to district leaders and other politicians, a.k.a. loyalty to Tammany Hall. So Seabury issues this report to the governor, a Democrat, FDR, who's trying to clean up city government in New York City that's being led by another Democrat who is himself supported by Tammany Hall. Right. Now, Walker and his cronies are kind of seeing where this is going because... Going to the top. It's going all the way to the top. So they begin a vicious attack against Seabury and even Roosevelt, tying this investigation into anti-communist fervor of the day, saying that Seabury was directed by the Russian government to overthrow City Hall. By 1932, FDR was running, of course, for president of the United States. All this corruption crackdown would look good for voters, right? Oh, it made Uh, him look strong. But going after Walker was another story because Roosevelt disliked Tammany Hall, but he kind of didn't he didn't want to completely isolate them. Because he still needed their support as a Democrat. He would lose New York City if he pushed them too hard, and they would, of course, turn to another Democratic candidate. Wait, there was another Democratic candidate? Yes, there was someone else that was going to possibly run for president again, Al Smith. Al Smith is back in the show. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, by May of 1932, Walker is now testifying in front of Seabury's committee. Seabury's trying to tie him to these various corrupt schemes. Most notably, and something I mentioned very, very quietly in our show two episodes ago on Jimmy Walker. Oh, I might have missed it. What was it? Well, you know how Walker wanted to introduce an interborough bus system? You talked about his achievements. Well, yeah. I mean, it was something he wanted to do and he he campaigned upon. Mm -hmm. The company that he favored was named the Equitable Coach. Um, One really big problem with Equitable Coach it was the fact that they, they actually owned no buses. <laughs> and there was, there was, they didn't have any there buses. There was no coach? There was no, no coach, no buses. It wasn't even a real company. 
And yet... But they got the contract. And then later, mysteriously, Walker would receive a line of credit from Equitable during one of his many European voyages. So he was like, they were footing the bill for one of his trips. Oh, they were Equitable. The press loved him, but Walker was beginning to melt down. He did not release his financial records, which he was supposed to. And he became so embittered at one point, off the stand, he like angrily remarked, quote, You and Frank Roosevelt are not going to hoist yourself to the presidency over my dead body. I've never heard him called Frank before, but that's <laughs> Just, true. Yeah. That, but, but this is May of 32. Yeah. The same year that Roosevelt's running for president. Yeah, so so yeah. Walker sees this as grandstanding to win the election. I mean, it's all tied into the national election, which is just an extraordinary turn of events here. In fact, Siegberry waited until one week before the Democratic National Convention to give his report to Roosevelt. I mean, like he was playing they were playing off this event. So this was lingering in the air on June 27th of 1932 at the Democratic National Convention in Chicago. During the nominating roll call, you know, back when, like, these things were actually contested. Oh, right. Cigar smoke. (laughs) Yes. During the nominating roll call, Roosevelt's name was entered as a candidate, and he immediately went to a sizable lead in delegates. But from the New York delegation, one man stood up, one delegate, and declared that his vote would be cast for an alternate candidate, Al Smith. Wait, the delegate? Who's this delegate who stood up? Jimmy Walker. Uh. (laughs) Well, of course, FDR would go ahead to get the nomination. Right, and whatever happened to Seabury in this, this enormous report? Well, Roosevelt then agrees to a hearing based on Seabury's charges. This was, in essence, a trial to declare Jimmy Walker incompetent for the job of mayor. If he's proven guilty of Seabury's charges, Roosevelt actually has the power to remove him from City Hall. He can remove the elected mayor of the New York City. The governor could. Yes. Among the many charges were that the, quote, that the mayor's agent deposited nearly a million dollars, of which 700,000 of it was in cash, in a secret deposit box, and that the mayor failed to explain the source of this money. One million dollars back then is today worth $17 million. And he just, he just didn't know where it came from? No. But he took it. He just took it, though. And, you know, he, and another charge was that he had failed to produce his financial records and then failed to testify frankly before the legislative committee. So Walker now goes up to Albany in August of 1932, waving him goodbye from Grand Central Station, including on his arm, his wife and their poodle Togo. <laughs> Betty Compton is nowhere around. He would he would divorce his wife the following year. She was just there for show. He goes to Albany for another hearing for a trial. Yes, for a trial. Now with Roosevelt there in the room, it's very melodramatic. Perhaps because of the mounting pressure, Walker essentially crashes and burns at the hearing, and the press is now turned against him because you have so many millions have lost their life fortunes, have lost their jobs. No one has the patience for a man who's been squirreling away literally millions of dollars in safe deposits. And then kind of winking at the public, thinking he could just get away with it because everybody was having a blast. People were no longer having a blast. No. The final date of this hearing was on September 2nd. The night of September 1st, Walker spoke to his old friend, Al Smith, who told him, quote, Jim, you're through. You must resign for the good of the party. 
And so that night, he sent a note to the city clerk of New York, quote, I hereby resign as mayor of New York, the said resignation to take place immediately. So Walker, the mayor has resigned in September of 1932. With all of this action, and there is a lot of action that you just highlighted, taking place, I think it's easy to forget that prohibition is still in place. It's still the law of the land. And interestingly, it's gotten even more unpopular with the general public with each passing year. According to Michael Lerner in his fine book with a great punny title, Dry Manhattan, at this point in the early 30s, the repeal of prohibition even became more popular because it seemed easier to fix than dealing with this broken economy. People, you know, there was a general consensus that whatever happened on Wall Street, this slump, this economic slump, you know, needed to run its course. Um, and Herbert Hoover, president uh, up until 1932, really wasn't doing much to bolster the economy and put people back to work. But it was easy to figure out how you could do something about this incredibly unpopular law prohibiting the sale and manufacture of alcohol. Given that it was women's groups who had made such an early public push to get prohibition enacted in the first place, it was interesting that now it would be women's groups in the 1920s uh, that would lead, help lead to prohibition's repeal. They ushered it in, and now they were planning on ushering it out. That's right. Specifically, the Women's Organization for National Prohibition Reform, uh, which was a group that had been founded by a socialite named Pauline Morton Sabin of the Morton Salt Fortune. Um, <laughs> well, she, well, she found this, this organization in April 1929, just months before the stock market crash. And she brought in vast wealth through its founding members, who were mostly prominent members of high society. But then this group reached out to women, all women across the country, both Democrats and Republicans, anybody who was concerned about ending prohibition for good. So what's their motivation now for ending it? What, what wasn't their motivation? I mean, there's a laundry list by this point, right? It was prohibition had been enacted because it was seen as a way to restore order. Remember that it was it was early on part of the reform movement, as we talked about in our last episode on prohibition. So it now seemed 10 years in that prohibition was actually creating disorder in the streets because it was emboldening organized crime, you know, you were talking about the crime rings, homicide in New York City had doubled in the 1920s from 712 homicides in 1921 to 1,500 in 1931. And it wasn't just that. It was also, you know, making people sick who were drinking toxic liquor. Uh, It was destroying and corrupting the police forces. Uh, it was creating fires and explosions as people were trying to brew their own booze at home unsuccessfully. It was filling prisons with nonviolent offenders, especially after stricter laws had been passed in 1929 that were ramping up sentences for alcohol violations. And probably most ironic of all, prohibition was actually leading to more alcoholism and more drunkenness. The women were rightfully making a point that the scourge affecting the nation was actually not alcohol, but it was prohibition itself. Not to mention they were spending all this money to enforce it. 
but they weren't getting any money on tax revenues had it been a legal substance. Right. It was a double whammy and triple whammy because this is all happening during the Depression when the cities needed revenues the most. By legalizing alcohol again, bars, restaurants could reopen. People would come back, start spending money more freely, hiring bartenders and waiters and putting people back to work as well in breweries. And all the while, the city and the state and the federal government could collect taxes on top of that. Badly needed revenues. Which brings us back, Greg, to the 1932 presidential campaign in which FDR, running as a Democrat, took on the wet cause and was running against a dry Herbert Hoover for re-election, who was incredibly unpopular at this point, and he really didn't seem to have any new ideas. He seemed totally out of date, and it was a blowout. FDR won, won the election with 23 million to 16 million votes. And one of the very first things he did after being sworn in on March 13th, 1933, just nine days in office, he modified the Volstead Act. Now, that was the act, remember, that, that explained how prohibition would be enacted mm -hmm. in the states. He modified those rules to allow and legalize the sale of beer and wine. So immediately upon entering the, the White House, beer and wine was legal again. And by the end of that year, by December 5th, of 1933, the 21st Amendment had been passed, which repealed Prohibition. Well, where does this leave our queen of the nightclubs, the woman who relied on Prohibition <laughs> for her bread and butter, Texas Guinan? Well, that same year, 1933, she was back in movies, starring in the film Broadway Through a Keyhole, in which she was playing herself, again, the sort of mistress of ceremonies in a speakeasy, you can watch this, by the way. I, I encourage people to look up the clips that are available on YouTube of Broadway Through a Keyhole. It's kind of fabulous to see her. That same year, in 1933, she took her show on the road and headed even to Europe. However, she was refused entry to Europe. Oh, because she was she, too, too naughty? She was just too too dirty. So <laughs> she, she kept trying in different ports and she was re rejected. So she came back home and turned the whole thing into a show called Too Hot for Paris. Oh, yeah, because literally she couldn't get into she Paris. She was too hot for Paris and she took it on the road. <laughs> Unfortunately, in the fall of 1933, while touring with that show in Chicago, she came down with dysentery. And she grew very sick, and she died on November 5th of 1933 in Vancouver. 7,500 people attended Texas Guinan's funeral, a funeral, Greg, in which she had insisted on an open casket. She said, quote, so the suckers can get a good look at me without a cover charge. Wow. <laughs> what a dame. So that's Texas. Whatever happened to Jimmy Walker? Well, after he resigned, he took a very, very, very long vacation in Europe. And there, literally, among the ancient ruins of Pompeii, he reunited with Betty Compton. He would eventually marry... Did he know she was going to be there? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a, it was a planned rendezvous. Ah, but a ruined marriage. <laughs> Walker and Compton would eventually move back to New York and live a very quiet life. They would even adopt two children, but they would divorce in 1941. Walker's reputation, people still liked him. Even through all of this, he was still well-regarded, so much so that his, his reputation was sort of 
repaired organically, no less than Mayor Fiorella LaGuardia would give him the thumbs up. LaGuardia, who would then be elected in 1933, he would appoint Jimmy Walker eventually as a labor arbitrator for the garment industry. So LaGuardia gave Walker a job. Yeah, the man who had defeated him for mayor in 1929. Well, in 1945, Jimmy Walker returned to his musical roots and became the head of a record label uh, named Majestic Records, working on such songs by Louis Prima, G.B. Lunsford, and Thelma Carpenter. On November 18, 1946, Jimmy Walker died. His wake was held at the Campbell Funeral Home, the same place at the wake of matinee idol Rudolph Valentino, had been held just two decades earlier. By this time, 1946, the Jazz Age was just a memory. Even Walker's casino nightclub was gone. It had been torn down in 1936 by a former confidant of Al Smith, who was now working in the administration of Fiorella LaGuardia, a man who was LaGuardia's parks commissioner, Robert Moses. And with Moses... A whole new era in New York City history was about to begin. Check out our blog, BoweryBoysHistory.com, for some images of the characters and events that we have talked about on this show. We'd like to thank our patrons who have joined us on Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash BoweryBoys. With their small monthly support, it's because of you that we're able to do a new show Every two weeks. And actually, Greg, it's because of these fine folk that we're going to be doing a new show, at least for the next couple of weeks, on a weekly schedule. Yes, so we will have a brand new Bowery Boys episode next Friday. Whoa. Um, Are you ready for that? Oh, I'm ready. (laughs) Ready to take on the challenge. We'd also like to thank our assistant, Kieran Gannon, who helped us with our editing for this show. And finally, if you like our show, you may also like the Bowery Boys spinoff, The First, where I just completed my three-part series on the life of Benjamin Franklin, which, again, was a stark contrast to the heady, giddy days of the jazz age here. But that is a three-part series that just completed. Please check out that show as well. Greg was actually managing two three-part series at the same time. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. You've been made whole again. (laughs) So thank you so much for joining us on this romp through the 1920s. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. Can you remember a time when you thought someone you disagreed with might actually be right? In the new podcast, You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen pose that question to guests like Paul Ryan, Al Gore, and Judy Woodruff. Come for the stories. Stay for the substance and expert insights into some of the most challenging issues facing the country, including affordable housing, crime, and education. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available wherever you get your podcasts.